Welcome to the Arrow Buddhist Tradition podcast series. The following podcast is from a teaching given by Nocturne Rinpoche in San Francisco in 2009 on the subject of relationship as practice. It is based on a book called Entering the Heart of the Sun and Moon, written by Nocturne Rinpoche and his wife, Contradation. For more information about the Arrow Buddhist tradition, please go to the website at arrowbuddhism.org. If you wish to make a donation to support this podcast project, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help and select Make a Donation. Thank you. Hmm. Philosophical extremes. Uh, When I was in college, in order to get out of college, I had to take a course in philosophy. It was one of those things you had to check off. And I kind of went any, many, many miles down the uh, list of possible courses and ended up in something called Theories of Knowledge and Reality. And it was a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. I, I could not believe that there were people who spent their whole lives doing this, <laughs> um, thinking about these things. And I finally asked the teaching assistant who was teaching the class, you know, do you like this? I mean, this is fun. He said, well, you have to know. He said, what, you know, you, you need to know that the future is going to be like the past, he said. And I said, huh? And he said, well, what if one morning you got up and threw a brick out the window and it fell up? And I remember, this is 1974, I said, I would say, oh, wow, man, it fell up. <laughs> <laughs> I was hopeless. But I think from the point of view of Buddhism, remember that the, the Shakyamuni Buddha's teachings are called the middle way. And sometimes people think of that as kind of easy. But it's actually not easy at all. It's much easier to sit over on one of those boxes. I've got it. Everything means everything. I understand now. This anxiety about whether I exist or not is going to go away now because I got it. Only it doesn't. You know, like, has everyone in here at least once felt like, oh no, I got it now, I understand? <laughs> and what happened to that? <laughs> you know, other things start to pop up through it and things happen that don't fit in that box. And somehow that sense kind of dissolves unless we hang on to it and make a religion out of it. Uh, Rinpoche mentioned uh, New Age is monism and eternalism, you know. And you could say some forms of Christianity are, are eternalist. Uh, existentialism is nihilist. I mean, people have taken different, different conceptions and made religions or philosophical schools out of them. But I wonder if it's helped. That, that question that Rimshe asked, why would someone ask, do I exist? I think therefore I am, is a philosophical answer, right? But why did he ask that question? Why was he concerned? And that's what um, the middle way is about. It's not about getting it or getting some understanding. I'm just, re- do you understand what I'm saying now, Kate? Because you asked about the, there's a, a teaching called the Three Terrible Oaths, <laughs> um, which 
maybe this is not the time to get into, but a third, third of them is um, there is no purpose. But that is really speaking from the standpoint of realization and from the standpoint of non-duality. And to say there is no purpose in that, in that teaching is to say there is no one single purpose. There can be purposes. But if I say there is a purpose, then I am probably eternalist. Does that make sense? Because uh, what would a purpose be in terms of emptiness and form? Hmm? Um, it's to emptiness and form, there is no purpose and emptiness and form. No, I mean, if you have to choose, which which is a purpose? Is it emptiness or is it form? Oh, it's form. Yeah, <laughs> if it's form, it's impermanent. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there cannot be a purpose in that sense, unless it's an impermanent purpose, which which means purpose is plural. There are there are infinite purposes. There are purposes for every point in time in terms of compassionate activity. But that's not something that's laid down. There's something that's a spontaneous occurrence. You know, the purpose of the answer is the question. I didn't know the question was going to be there. It arises, there's a response. So from the point of view of Buddhism, you know, there is no purpose, as uh, Zemi said, there is no one overriding purpose that is solid, permanent, separate, continuous, and defined. There are simply infinite purposes according to the arising of compassion in each moment. And you cannot define them. Uh, so this is, this is basically Buddhism's criticism of almost every other religion. Or Buddhism's, uh, criticism's not a good word, but it started out with Hinduism, basically, that they were responding to. When, this, when these kinds of things came up, they were looking at Hinduism and saying, mm, yeah, but, to me, it's, it, that's what the, the fundamental teaching of the four philosophical extremes is, yeah, but. <laughs> no. And so the, the Hindus, they, they called tutikas, which I think means heretic. And it was just anyone who Disagreed. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> anyone who disagrees. Anyone who disagrees? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, anyone who holds to one of the four philosophical extremes. And in fact, mm -hmm. there could be many people who call themselves Buddhists who mm -hmm. would be mm -hmm. tirtikas in that way. Yeah. Uh, it's something that we can always look, look for. And it's a way of understanding any other tradition that we might run across. You know, like the philosophers. I could understand, okay, you know. The ones I was studying with were nihilists. Yes? Wasn't the whole point that the Tirthikas were people who thought they were Buddhists and were mistaken? I mean, I don't think they were bothered to consider people who didn't consider themselves Buddhists to be heretics. Historically, I don't know. It's an interesting question. It, it, it might be like that. I, I, I don't know historically exactly who they were. Uh, but uh, a point that, that um, Zermade made that is very important is that uh, uh, 
and which you've brought up about were they Buddhist or not, is uh, that there are many people who think of themselves as Buddhist who are in fact not Buddhist because they follow the philosophical extremes, especially in terms of eternalism. That, that comes up a lot, particularly with karma. Mm -hmm. I was um, told of a conference of, of vets that occurred um, I won't say where, I, I don't particularly want to pillory a, a, a recognizable person, but there, one of the vets there was Buddhist and didn't um, uh, believe in um, euthanizing animals because they had to experience their karma. And uh, th this was kind of odd because uh, Buddhism is a... Uh, supposed to be, uh, most people think of it as a religion of logic and so uh, l logically if you take this principle you say well so what else does it apply to then? It applies to pain relief. You don't give the animal pain relief either because to relieve it of its pain is to um, relieve it of its karma and that's very bad. And if it applies to animals, it applies to human beings. So you shouldn't even be a vet. You should not cure anything of its illness because you're robbing it of its of its karma. Uh, beyond that, you shouldn't heat your home be, because you're you're robbing yourself of the experience of your coldness karma. Or you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, you shouldn't do anything at all. Uh, no, wear clothes or whatever. It's anything you do to adjust the situation to ameliorate it is not experiencing the karma you're supposed to be experiencing. So the whole thing is actually complete nonsense. Uh, so th you know this is where uh, the understanding of karma becomes eternalist. You know, it, and you're completely corrupt because karma has to do with perception and response. Mm. But, you know, there are, I'd say there are very few Buddhists who are actually Buddhist. Mm. From that point of view. Because karma is not what happens, it's how you see what happens, how you respond to it, how you understand it what your habitual tendencies are in terms of how you see. So it's not whether you get the illness or not, it's how you relate to having it, whether you resent it. Because there are all kinds of different responses to having the illness. I've heard arguments between mostly in the context of the Zen Sangha, um, between the eternalist Buddhists and the nihilist Buddhists, oh, yeah. who have a more kind of scientific, hard-nosed approach and are making that mistake. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's why they're called philosophical extremes, because of you. And unfortunately, uh, there don't seem to be a great number of people who've ever heard of the four philosophical extremes. 
which is a pity because they find themselves in these conditions holding these views without even realizing that there's a perfectly adequate teaching that that, that corrects those misconceptions this, this Hindu concept everything's an illusion that would be a nihilist kind of extension of nihilism. Uh, yeah, but that's, a, you, you, you'll also find Buddhists who say that. Yeah, too. I know, like you were saying, that most Buddhists weren't, you didn't feel they were. I mean, from the Buddhist. point of view of Sutra, you see, to say everything is an illusion is really quite important. Because if you're coming from the point of view where everything is hardwired fact, you need to break that up. Uh, this is why uh, I, I said Buddhism is a religion of method. You need to address the situation. So, um, you know, if you're looking at the world as a fixed reality, then to view it as illusion is very helpful because it breaks down that tendency to concretize everything. That, that everything there is is solid and predictable and is really there. You know, it's like my s story about the rubbish bag, you know, the plastic bag that's flapping down the end of one street. And it was, I was on Fulton. I was walking down, I, I was jet lagged and got up too early and was walking down to the sea and there's the black plastic bag that I think is a dog at a distance. <laughs> and as long as I think it's a dog, it acts like a dog. It acts like the most bizarre dog I ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> like it gets up on its hind legs and falls back on the back. <laughs> it then throws itself at a wall. <laughs> and I'm having all these ideas about the dog, you know. And I, I remember when I was a kid that some sociopath got a dog drunk once and I thought, well, what a mean thing to do to an animal. And then I thought, well, maybe that's what's happened here. <laughs> and then I think, well, maybe it's rabid, you know. And I'm just trying to account for <laughs> what the dog's doing. And I realize it's a black plastic bag. <laughs> and then it ceases to be a dog. <laughs> and I try to see it as a dog again. It cannot. It looks nothing like a dog. I saw little ears, nose. <laughs> Everything was there as long as I saw it as a dog. And so this whole idea of the world being illusion, um, it, it's, it's really very important in various ways. Because, you know, as long as the black plastic bin bag is a dog, then it's a dog. And I see it as a dog and it behaves like a dog. So did that lead the Buddha to the middle way teachings? Um, I'm not sure exactly in what order those things arose, but um, also, you know, the illusion is not that a thing is not there, necessarily, but the thing is not there in the way I think it's there. You know, and there are all these people who think uh, Frank Sinatra sang. <laughs> this is an illusion. He talked his way through every wretched song he <laughs> put on record. I get shot for saying this one day. <laughs> but um, so, so the illusion, the world is an illusion, uh, actually means the world is uh, the sum of our projections, and it's not. 
it's not what we project onto it. So uh, you can hear that uh, teaching on the world as illusion in two different ways. It's either uh, the illusion of our projections or that nothing is there and it's all in mind. Um, so you, you have to bear that in mind when that statement is being made from a such a point of view that, that what is meant is the world is empty of our projections and it's the, the projected world which is illusory. It's like the stock market is a good example <laughs> of illusion, you know. <laughs> um, David was explaining it to me and I thought, whoa, that is, there's a whole body of teaching in that, you know. You know, if you understand how the stock market works, you understand illusion you know, <laughs> of what is real and what is not real and when money exists and when it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's all yeah. just an agreement. Yeah, and it's it's vacuous, the whole thing, <laughs> uh, which is why it collapses from time to time, because you can't shore that illusion up forever. Mm -hmm. I have nothing more to say. If you have questions, please ask. Yes? I just wanted to ask if, if what Rinpoche was just saying could be also, if I understand it correctly, <coughs> that a statement like, like Okay, that some teachings, such as uh, everything is an illusion, could be misunderstood th through application of one of the four extremes, or it could be correctly understood, in which case it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a four extreme. It wouldn't That's be one of the four yeah. extremes. Yeah. We, where where we have an extreme is where we've misunderstood something and think we understand it. Oh, okay. That's what you know, if we if we either do understand it or we at least understand that we don't understand. We're in a much more, in a much better position. Oh, okay. So is that why you were saying that in the beginning? Because you were saying these are four ways that we can know that we don't understand, that we, that we think we understand what we don't understand. Yeah, and if you can recognize that, you can turn the cup over. Yeah, you can turn the cup over. You know, you can recognize it in yourself. Oh, I'm being eternalist here. Wait a minute. You know, maybe it doesn't mean anything this time. I was just uh, just remembering uh, uh, reading that Suzuki Roshi said that the essence of his own school of Soto Zen was the phrase "Yes, but." Did he say that? How cool! Well, he's was. Someone said that the Soto school was founded on people who'd studied. The part of the Heart Sutra that says, "No eye, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no color, no taste, sound, smell, etc.," and kind of looked at it and said, "But I have a nose." <laughs> and I can't remember. Was it Dogen who said that? Somebody did. Yeah, I think it was the originator of the Soto school. Said, "Wait a minute, I have a nose." <laughs> so whatever philosophical extreme that person was in at that point, he backed off, <laughs> and you know something quite wonderful came out of that for a whole lot of people. It's like that, you know, my dog has no nose. How does it smell? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> does your dog bite? <laughs> well, I believe it's lunchtime, therefore it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
we will uh, uh, resume at three. This morning we've, um, we're looking at emptiness in terms of um, the philosophical approach of looking at the idea of projection, of looking at reference points and what this I might be, might not be. We then have the uh, the silent sitting approach, which is non-intellectual, which is going directly into the experience of there being no reference point by letting go of, th of thought that arises. I mentioned earlier on that there was a third approach, which is really crucial for probably all of us here, which really requires looking at the emptiness that happens. You know, there's a bumper sticker, isn't there? Um, emptiness happens. Uh, or something like that. I um, because the nature of reality is non-dual, there are going to be reflections of emptiness whatever we do. Whether we sit or not, emptiness will be reflected. And form is obviously there and it's what we're used to. We're simply not used to looking at its empty manifestation or working with its empty manifestation. Um, Zeme touched on this with the idea of understanding in terms of what is it when we um, think we understand but we don't understand that being locked off in that way from the possibility of understanding one of the reasons why we'd rather think we understood than uh, remain not knowing is because we don't like not knowing. Uh, people often become upset when they can't understand the teaching and are surprised when contradiction or I will say, well, it doesn't actually matter. You just listen. And if you don't understand, then you don't understand. That's far better than grasping onto some idea purely in order that I feel I can understand. So what is it about not understanding that we don't like, apart from the idea that it would be preferable to understand? That was a question, by the way. Ambiguity? Hmm? Ambiguity? That's another thing we don't like. <laughs> You feel emptiness. like you're out of control. You can't control it because you don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> what does that sound like? Emptiness. Hmm? Emptiness. emptiness. So, ambiguity, confusion, lack of understanding, directionlessness, uh, vulnerability. Vulnerability. Oh, <laughs> vulnerability. There are certain words that are not easy for me to say at the moment. Um, there are many reflections of emptiness within life. 
you know life crises you've heard about them you know, there's this famous <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting for that <laughs> there's the famous midlife crisis you know. um, there were some psychologists who said there are seven crises in our lives <laughs> which is good for psychologists because they can earn money <laughs> listen to us talk about them uh, but basically, there are all kinds of crises that go on, you know, personality crisis, you know, who am I? I was at school and I thought I wanted to be a uh, brain surgeon, airline pilot, um, taxidermist, um, <laughs> ballet dancer, whatever, and now I'm there, I studied, and now I'm doing it, and I don't know why I'm doing it anymore. I'm just doing it because it's a job and uh, I find no meaning in it. There are all kinds of crises of this nature, which are all reflections of emptiness. I'm sure, looking around, yeah, I think I'm right. Um, <laughs> every, everyone's old enough to have had a friend who isn't a friend anymore and you don't really know why. And you've gone through a period of um, being aware of the fact that distance is occurring. And you don't know whether to mention it, to say, did I do something? What's happened? You think, well, maybe this is just a phase they're going through. But the main feeling seems to be I want to actually know if this person's a friend or not I'm not happy to be in this state where I'm not sure about the situation so the practice of emptiness in all these situations in life circumstances is to remain with the ambiguity of them not to resent the ambiguity not to look for some kind of certainty positive or negative we often don't care we'd rather have a bad answer than no answer mm -hmm. the practice is to remain with the uncertainty the ambiguity the paradox the confusion and name that practice so I'm not going to come to a conclusion I'm not going to um, wonder when this is going to be over <laughs> uh, to simply remain with that non-understanding Oh, silent sitting is a formal practice. I, I, I'm saying that this is obviously essential, but um, what's important is that you're able to practice emptiness in your everyday life when you don't have much time for silent sitting. And life is always offering us is always offering us opportunities for encountering emptiness. And the practice there is not to struggle with it, not to grasp at some kind of form, any kind of form, in order to get rid of the uncertainty, the confusion, the paradox, the ambivalence, the ambiguity.
like when you eat something you've never eaten before, you think, do I like this or is this revolting? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, cheese when I like it best is when I don't know. I think, no. oh, this is close to the edge. <laughs> <laughs> this grow on some stone in a cellar <laughs> is this actually edible or not? I love that kind of cheese <laughs> <laughs> students get Montbriac in for me for this purpose and they will avoid it even being in the same room as it sometimes it's so <laughs> There are many things like this. I mean, uh, if you, you know, if you think of, um, but some things are societally acceptable. You know, you know, take any kind of spirit, like whiskey. This is actually painful, <laughs> but you're told this is an acceptable thing to put in your mouth. <laughs> so because society tells you it's all right, you can do it, but, well, unless you're abstemious, but, um, but what if no one had ever heard of this stuff and I gave you a glass of it and you came from a culture who, who didn't know about spirit? You'd act as if I'd assaulted you. <laughs> Why have you done this to me? <laughs> Given me this unpleasant drink to put in my mouth. <laughs> I mean, I'm like that with tofu. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever thought that up? Oh. <laughs> So uh, there are so many situations we can find. Uh, relationship can be one of those situations. <laughs> there are very strange things that happen in terms of um, what causes attraction and how attraction vacillates. You know, in terms of looking at a person uh, I'm sure that not everyone, but many people here will have fallen in love with somebody that at one time they found a little bit gawky <laughs> or weird looking or, or, or they had buck teeth or they had <laughs> funny ears or something. Uh, and then you fall in love and those buck teeth are the greatest things you've ever seen. <laughs> Has anyone ever had that? Now, now isn't that a weird thing? You know, what happens there in terms of what's solid and what's not solid? You know, what, what has a certain kind of meaning? What, what I like and what I don't like? What can I rely upon in terms of my perception of the world? As you can see, we're kind of inching toward relationship now. <laughs> um, are there any questions? She said about the four extremes that em emptiness or non-duality was in the middle where it was neither the one nor the other. And when she was saying that, I was thinking about the formulation about um, the middle way not being not being one, not being the other, not being both, not being neither, which kind of leaves you with that, huh? 
<laughs> and uh, when you were talking just now, I was thinking, is that the middle way is smack dab in the sitting with the... Well, the middle way is... I've never been fabulously keen on that expression. It's not as if you can get in the middle of the four, right. and that's the perfect position. Uh, it's really called, in full, the middle way that avoids the four extremes. Mm. So, um, you see, there's mm. nothing actually wrong with the four extremes, apart from them being extreme. And what makes them extreme is using them to define reality. Unless you use them to define the whole of reality, they're not extreme. They're just poles of experience. So certainly, you know, when you uh, experience your life, you can, you can read messages from existence. Except that sounds eternalistic. It's only eternalistic when you say there is a distinct message in everything. Not that messages occur, messages certainly do occur. And you can think, hang on, <laughs> there's something similar about all this and I kind of feel that life's telling me something here. But that can happen. We're not saying that that can't happen. It's when we start making too much of that and reading that into everything. So then the answer is to say, none of it means anything. So it's actually better to say, I wonder if this means something here. Because it probably doesn't. On the odd occasion it might do. But it's all in, it's all in motion. So it's not converting any of these poles into a definition of reality. That's when they become extremes, philosophical extremes. It's not that you have to avoid them altogether because they are aspects of reality. So uh, in Sutrayana, this, not this, not that, not this and not that, and not either this or that, is just another way of saying that in uh, a kind of an Indian logical uh, stylistic. So what I'm talking about here is the same as that, except I'm not using that particular stylistic. I think in some ways that stylistic is not as understandable as recognizing that the four extremes are just reflections of reality and if you use one to define everything that's what makes it an extreme mm -hmm. and if you do that you find yourself more or less in the middle but the middle is is a, is a slightly confusing idea it's like you you're avoiding any contact with any of them which would be a sutrayana approach of renunciation but in terms of Tantra we can see well sure you know there is a nihilist approach that's that's really workable as Zeme was saying it's it's kind of courageous when you're saying that uh, 
everything has not been set up as a wonderfully positive teaching aid for me <laughs> you know so that I can evolve higher and higher oh yes I've just got my leg removed and that is for my eternal benefit in some way <laughs> so it might not be you know it might just be a bummer you know <laughs> uh, you know you know, but that, I mean, just think of that, you know, you get your legs amputated and you have to accept that that's for no purpose and it's just a bad deal. And there might be no benefit to be had out of it at all. It might just be the blunt fact of that. So that is a valuable approach because it's not, um, you know, turning the universe into your own personal potty training. <laughs> which is what often happens with eternalism you know that everything's all right really so this is saying you know everything's not all right there are no guarantees there's no meaning there certainly is no guaranteed meaning so you can see the quality of that nihilist approach there but you know divorced from the the fact that meaning does arise that's when nihilism becomes a philosophical extreme so meaning manifests out of meaninglessness meaninglessness is the emptiness of meaning when meaning is the form and form is impermanent so meaning is going to arise and dissolve in the emptiness of meaninglessness so there we have a non-dual understanding where meaning and meaninglessness are not contradictory we can see that they are a natural phenomenon form arises out of emptiness and dissolves into emptiness meaning arises out of meaninglessness pattern arises out of chaos and dissolves back into chaos again because the pattern the meaning are impermanent and here impermanence is not a negative quality Impermanence is the vibrant quality of form to be continually changing and to arise, you know, this is actually the meaning of compassion, is impermanence. Every new form that arises, arises spontaneously in connection with all other forms that exist. And so you have opportunities every millisecond for a change of direction or, or an appropriate response, a compassionate response. So compassionate responsiveness is based on impermanence. Is that why Chen Rizzi has a thousand arms? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and a thousand iPhones in each one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, that you know, that's exactly why, because that's method. It could be a million armed, you know, just a thousand, just endless, you know. Because for every situation, for every permutation, there's something different. <coughs> yeah. So does that does that make sense of this middle way now? Yeah. Because the middle is is also all of it. The middle includes the four extremes. It just doesn't go in in any of their directions, saying this one's the answer. It doesn't fix on anything. <coughs> no. So it's not that it avoids them, like, you know, it's... Expressed as avoidance, uh, avoiding the four extremes, it would, would be very much the language of sutra. You know, transforming the four extremes and, and realizing their, their non-dual quality the non-dual quality of monism and dualism. And the non-dual quality of dualism and non-dualism, mm. which is really at the heart of the Kandrapao Nita Melongyu, which we'll get on to. 